Hi folks, Jack Spierko here. Today you are listening to an episode of TSP Rewind. <laughs> Commercial-free versions of past episodes. Podcast blasts from the past. I put these up when I can't do a show due to professional commitments or rare vacations. These podcasts will appear in standard iTunes, Stitcher, and other feeds, but will be titled TSP Rewind Episodes and numbered accordingly. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. Hi folks, Jack Spierko here today with another episode of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tougher, even if they don't. Coming to you once again from Arlington, Texas, today with episode 538 of the Survival Podcast. It is a Tuesday, October, October 26th, 2010, and that means October's almost over. Thanksgiving will be here, Christmas and the year will be over. How prepared will you be for the end of the year? How much uh, advancement will you make in your personal independence and liberty between now and 2011? It's up to you. I suggest you pay attention to time because it will march on whether you pay attention to it or not. What are we going to talk about today? Today we're going to talk about money. I'm not really going to talk a lot about debt as it pertains to you. I'll talk about debt in some levels because... As you'll see today, it's where our money actually comes from. It's how it's created. I'll talk about some things that might sound a little bit political, but they won't. I'm not going to tell you what we should or we should not do. I'm going to tell you today what money is, where it comes from, how it derives its value, how it inflates, how it deflates, how it contracts, the traps that go along with our current system. I'm going to tell you how our money is supposed to be created according to the Constitution of the United States of America. I am not going to put my partisan leanings into it any more than I possibly you know, have. There's parts of me that will come through, I'm sure, but I'm going to try to be as much of a political atheist as I can be today. Um, I am not concerned with who wins so much if we do things the way they're supposed to be done. Okay? We can debate what to do, how to do it, the means, all that other stuff, after we throw out the people that have destroyed the system and mortgaged the entire United States of America. No matter what you think about government spending or health care, none of that stuff matters, as you'll see today. And I'm going to answer a question for you today that many people don't know the answer to. What is money? If you believe that the only way to fix our money system is with a gold standard, I'm going to challenge you. If you believe there's nothing wrong with our current system, I'm going to challenge you. I'll tell you what, no matter what you think you know about money today, some of the things I say are going to be probably new for you, and some of the things are going to challenge your thinking. As I said, we're going to talk about money today, and I know that you might think this is going to be a dry subject. This is not going to be a dry subject. All right, I'm going to try to animate this. I'm going to try to use analogy. I'm going to try to make this everything you should have been taught, I, I would say, by the 10th grade in high school about money. And most of it is something you were never taught anywhere, even if you went to college. Uh, you probably didn't learn this, unless you went into economics, and then you probably had a whole bunch of politics brought in with it to tell you why these things are sort of true, but wrong. And I'm just going to tell you the way things are. I'm going to tell you how money is born in the United States and how, how, it's, how it has kids and grandkids. I'm going to tell you where our money went. You, all this money disappeared between 2008 and now. I'm going to tell you where it went. 
Most people, I, I've heard top economists talk about what happened to the M3 and they don't seem to know where it went. And it's, it's so simple to understand. M3 is all the money. I'm going to tell you where it went. I'm going to tell you where the value of our money comes from. People say our money's worthless. It's not exactly true, just because it's not backed by gold and silver. There's, it, it's worth something. If it wasn't, you wouldn't go to work. I'm going to tell you how the monetary system we have has internal built-in traps that cannot be escaped by the public at large. I'm going to tell you why we have an income tax. It'll shock you, the real facts about why we even have an income tax. I'm going to tell you how the real issue that we have is not whether or not our, gold is, our money is gold or silver backed, but how it's really about whether or not the public controls the monetary supply or private people control the money supply. I'm going to tell you what money actually is. I'm going to take you through creating a fictional barter currency today. And I have a unique reason for that. I'll explain when I get to it. I'm going to tell you how we could fix our current monetary system. In fact, I'm going to tell you at the root the only way it can be fixed. And then I'm going to give you ideas for once that root is fixed, other ways, other things that can be done going forward. And that's a debate that we can publicly have if we can get past the first hurdle. And then I'm going to finish up with telling you, now that you know these things, what you can do for yourself. So this is not going to be Economics 101 that bored you to tears in school. And this is not going to be me preaching from the pulpit of, uh, of politics. It may be a long show. You may have to break it into two parts. But I will give you an education today, I promise you, that will change the way fundamentally forever that you think about the concept of money. And you need to listen to this and you need to take this in. And maybe you need to listen to this show multiple times. Because I will tell you the fact is that nothing in your life has a greater effect on you day to day than money. No matter how much we try to say that I don't care about money, money's not important to me, there's other ways to measure wealth in your life. I don't care about any of that today, at least for the, the, the fundamental fact that if I took all of the money that you have away, and I took all of the income that you had away, unless you are so far along in your prepping and independence that you live somewhere out in the middle of nowhere, everything is paid for, you don't even have property taxes, and you produce 100% of everything you use, unless you are that person, I would actually make you, from whatever level of happiness you have, far less happy, if not miserable. I, if you have a job... Money plays a daily role in your life. You wouldn't go to a job unless you had to. And I, there are a few people out there that are lucky that you happen to have a job you would do for free. If everything else was just okay. Most of us are not that person. And most of us that are that person, we got that way by working jobs we didn't want until we had the opportunity to create the one we did. And even the people that are happy in their jobs have days they would just go do something else. And the people that can do anything else, they do that because they are what? Monetarily wealthy. Nothing in your life has the day-to-day -day influence that money does over it. Nothing has a greater capacity to threaten the stability of our nation than the monetary system. So it is the ultimate survival topic in my view. And if it's going to be the thing, whether we control it or not, whether we can change it or not, if it is going to have this profound effect, then at least we should understand it. So please open your mind now and let me bring you 
new knowledge. And if you think you know this stuff, trust me, there's going to be times all the way along you're going to nod your head, nod your head, nod your head. Listen intently today. I seldom ask you that, but listen intently today because if you think you know this stuff cold and you don't think there's anything new here for you, you'll nod your head right through the thing that should shake you at your core. At least one time today, you should stop and go, let me rewind that because that can't be right. And then if you disagree, I want you to fact check it. All right. Number one, let's start out with how money is created in the United States of America today. Most people have no idea how money is created. Even the people that think they do. Even the people that know what the Federal Reserve is really all about. Even the people that are aware that it's no longer backed by gold or anything that's backed. Most people just don't actually understand how money gets born. So let's talk about the birth of dollars. So it's a typical day, and that means that the United States government wants to spend money it doesn't have. So the Congress calls the Treasury, and they want some money. Let's say it's a, it's a slow day. They need a million bucks they don't have. Now, what most people think is the Treasury's going to go create a million dollars, but they don't. What the Treasury actually does is create something called a U.S. Treasury bond. These bonds are nothing but pieces of paper, and they state, if you buy this bond, that the government eventually will give you your money back, plus some interest at some point. Now, what the Treasury does is it sells these bonds to anyone that wants to buy them. The Chinese buy them, the English buy them, you buy them, I can buy, anybody that wants to buy a U.S. Treasury bond can buy a U.S. Treasury bond. But up to this point, money has been raised for the government to spend once the bonds are sold, But no new money's been created. So, when it's time to create new money, that's when the Federal Reserve comes in. Now, Federal Reserve sounds like a government office. The Department of Treasury, the United States Congress, and the Federal Reserve, all three of them work together for the money supply. The Federal Reserve must be part of the United States government. Federal Reserve is a private corporation made up of banks. I will leave it at that for now. Most people who listen to the show regularly are aware of that. If you are not, you can look this up for yourself. The Federal Reserve is not federal at all. It's as federal as something like, let's say, Federal Express. It's part of its name, but it is not inside the government. It is not controlled by the government. Uh, certain officers within it are appointed by the government. But the actual entity itself is kind of a bottom-up entity. The people that are really pulling the shots are the ones you never see or hear from. It's not conspiracy theory. Pretty much says that on the Federal Reserve's website. But for now, just understand the Federal Reserve is a group of private banks. But the Federal Reserve decides that the monetary base, the total number of dollars in circulation, needs to be expanded. We don't have enough money to go around for everybody in our current economy. Or, we'll get to it later, nobody wants to buy the, bank, the bonds and the, uh, the government still needs the money. All right. So what the Federal Reserve does is it steps in and it goes over, let's say it was a million dollars worth of bonds, and Bank of America bought those bonds. A bank bought the U.S. Treasury bonds. This happens all the time. So Federal Reserve goes over to Bank of America and says, Bank of America, we'll take those million dollars worth of U.S. bonds, uh, plus the accrued interest up to this point off your hands. We'll buy those bonds for you and take receivership of them. And Bank of America says, fine, and it sells its bonds to the Federal Reserve. Now you would think, well, no new money has been created yet. Where are these new dollars Jack promised us? Here's the magic. Here's how it happens. 
The Federal Reserve doesn't actually use money to buy the bonds. So what do they buy them with? Nothing. They buy them with a computer entry. An operation that an 8th grader could accomplish is, is done over at the Federal Reserve. Send to BOA. One million USD. Send. Boom. So, now a million dollars has been deposited into Bank of America's coffers. One million dollars of bonds plus interest due back has gone into the hands of the Federal Reserve. Now, instead of owing Bank of America, the United States government and its people thereby owe the Federal Reserve the money plus the interest, and guess what? It costs them nothing to produce those new million dollars. So now those new million dollars are in circulation. You might be right now asking yourself, how the hell is this possible? Is this actually true? Um, you might actually think, I've gone off the deep end. Well, uh, let me read to you, this is from a publication called Putting It Simply, which is a publication that was put out by one of the Federal Reserve branches in the, er, in the early 80s. And uh, this is what it says. This is from the Fed. When you or I write a check, there must be sufficient funds in our account to cover the check. But when the Federal Reserve writes a check, there is no bank deposit on which that check is drawn. When the Federal Reserve writes a check, it is creating money. So there's no conspiracy theory there. There's no dark alleys. This is publicly available information. The Federal Reserve simply decides to create new money. And in creating new money, Bank of America gets the million dollars which, of course, is getting their own money back they spent, maybe a little bit of interest on top of it, depending on how, the bond, how long the bond floated. But the Federal Reserve gets the money due them without putting out a red cent. And the money due them plus interest. But now we've had the money supply expand by a million dollars. But see, that's not the way our... If that stopped there, as bad as it would be, at least there would be some level of control on the monetary system. But the banks want in on this scam, too. I mean, remember, the Federal Reserve's made up of a bunch of banks. Hell, the bank the Fed turns around and buys the bond from might be part of the Fed itself. How's that for double-dipping in the till? But now Bank of America has a million new dollars. You have to understand that it's new money. It's just been created out of thin air. So Bank of America takes the million dollars. And what do they do with it? Do they sit on it? Do they pay bank president bonuses with it? Well, maybe, but let's say the bonuses have been paid this year. So Bank of America says, we need to put this million dollars to work. Now, how are they going to do that? Well, they want to loan it out. Now, let's say they do it in a one, they can loan up to 90% of the value of the loan out. So a million dollars, nice round number they can loan out $900,000. So what happens is the bank loans out $900,000 and you get the loan and you buy a house with it. Right? You go buy a big giant McMansion for nine hundred grand somewhere in L.A. or something. I guess you wouldn't get a big giant McMansion in L.A. for nine hundred grand. You get a little dump in L.A. for nine hundred grand. So you buy a big McMansion in uh, Kansas for $900,000 from a Kansas bank. That was the one the Fed gave the million dollars to. So guess what happens now? You would think that the bank is holding $100,000 in reserves and actually transferred the $900,000 to the, the home buyer, and then the home buyer signs the check over to the home seller, and that $900,000 goes off and does whatever it's going to do and ends up in a bank somewhere else, 
but that it's out of the initial bank. That's not the case. They do the same thing the Federal Reserve does. They don't actually give you that 900,000 original dollars. They actually just make a journal entry as well, and they take the lien against the property, the mortgage paperwork, in receivership. In other words, if you fail to make restitution on your debt, they take the house and try to recover as much as they can of what have they lost. But they don't actually give you the $900,000. They create $900,000 new dollars. The same way with a journal entry. Um, this is uh, something else you might go, this can't be true. Okay, well, one of the most often quoted references regarding money creation uh, is the Federal Reserve publication called Modern Money Mechanics. And if you'll go on Google and search for Modern Money Mechanics, you'll find tons of places where you can download a copy to read in PDF. And when you do that, if you go to page 6, the publication from the Federal Reserve itself says, of course they, the banks, do not really pay out loans for the money they receive as deposits. If they did this, no additional money would be created. So the bank, when it loans money, creates new money. Some of you guys are waiting for the shocking revelations here. You haven't heard them yet. You know this story. Follow me through this story because even if you know this story, it's going to put you in the right frame of mind for things that I'm going to lay on you here in just a little bit. So the banks create money out of thin air by loaning it. Now, the thing is, they can do this over and over again. Let's say you come to the Bank of Jack and you borrow the 900 grand. I give you the new 900 grand I create out of thin air. You sign it over to your buddy Tom who sells you the $900,000 house. Tom happens to be a customer of the exact same bank. And he owned his house for cash. Is he probably going to take that $900,000 and, and go fishing with it? No, he's probably going to put it in his bank account. So he puts it back in my bank. Let's say maybe I originally held the mortgage on the bank. Let's say it's a totally different bank. It doesn't matter. The point is, let's say Tom owed $800,000 on a $900,000 house. What's he going to do? He's going to take a hundred of it and he's going to use it toward purchasing new housing or something else. He's going to put eight hundred. But sooner or later, the entire amount of money that I gave you, that you gave Tom, is going to end up deposited back into other banks. Once it does, as new money, we can do this again. So now, nine hundred thousand dollars, uh, and we can loan up to ninety uh, percent of the $900,000 back out. That's another $810,000. So the new bank that took possession of the new $900,000 goes out and loans out $810,000 of it. Now the million dollars that came in at the top from the Federal Reserve that they created with a journal entry has gone through two journal entry processes and it's now $2.7 million. And it's all debt. And it's all due back plus what? Interest. And this can keep going and going and going. And quite honestly, for every million dollars they put into the economy in new monetary debt, we can create another $10 million to go along with it. And that's where money comes from. That's how it gets born. But now I'd like to switch gears for you, and I'd like to explain to you how it can get worse. You might have heard of something called monetizing debt. The Federal Reserve monetizing our debt. Doing our own, you know really printing money. By the way, on the printing money thing, guess what? Only 3% of total U.S. dollars exist in print. They don't print money anymore. They create it in computers. 3%. For every $100,000 that the, the United States has, only $3,000 exists in paper. 
Think about that when you hear printing money. But we often hear like, oh, they're printing money, they're printing money. And then you hear them say, well, now they're monetizing debt. They're really printing money now. This is just virtual printing money out of nothing. And you, But you, most people don't understand what that means. So I'd like to shift to a little chapter I'm going to call here, Pat, I'd like to buy my own debt. You ever watch Wheel of Fortune? This is a great analogy to understand this. There's three contestants. They all sit around the wheel. They spin the freaking wheel. It goes around. It lands on a, you know, a dollar amount or a bankruptcy or a special prize. But mostly it lands on dollars. And then there's a word puzzle. And if you land on $500, you say, Pat, I'd like, to, I'd like a T, please. And there's four T's in the puzzle. $2,000 goes into your bank. And every time you spin the wheel, you can look at the puzzle, try to figure out what letter you want to ask for. And as long as you guess the right letter... For every letter, you get a corresponding dollar amount deposited into your bank. And if it's a big puzzle and maybe a few misses are had, when you miss, it goes to the next player. All of a sudden, we're sitting there, we're looking at a, a situation. We've got three players, and everybody has some money in their, quote, bank. But that money's not real. It's just like a, a, our debt. It's just like our Social Security trust fund. It's a promise of money. It's the potential for money. Because only the winner gets money. But along the way, you can pick any letter you want except a vowel. You have to buy vowels on Wheel of Fortune. So you say to Pat Sajak, Pat, I'd like to buy a vowel. I'd like an E, please. And I don't know how much. I think it's $250 to buy a vowel. And you can get one, or if there's five, you get as many as there are, but it only costs you $250. So you've bought something without actually having money. But in our little neighborhood of make-believe that is Wheel of Fortune, if you lose, you really didn't buy anything with anything, and you didn't lose anything, You didn't spend anything because you never had the money. It's just evaporated in the thin air. But the winner has actually bought something with nothing. Because let's say the winner would have had $10,000. They bought one vowel, so now they get $9,750. $250 less than their original promise of money because they purchased something with nothing. Got it? Okay. Now... This is how this applies to what the Federal Reserve does. Let's say the United States government needs more money. It's, you know, one of those days that end in Y, so they need some more money. Now, they've been getting so much money loaned to them lately that those people like Bank of America and the Chinese and Grandma and everybody else decide, I don't want to buy any more U.S. debt today. Or the United States government needs, I don't know, a billion dollars, and they can only raise a half a billion dollars. Because people start to question, how much money should we really loan these people? And see, that is the cap on the monetary system. That's what keeps this big, it sounds like a mess, and it is, but at least it has some level of control at that point. The day that a foreign investor, or the Chinese, or you, won't go buy a treasury bond, they have to cap the supply. And then they have to fix the underlying issues if they want the supply to continue to expand. And if they don't, they don't get anybody coming in to give them more money. Great. But in steps the Federal Reserve and says, we got to fix this. This is called quantitative easing. It's also called monetizing debt. And what the Federal Reserve says is, no problem, Treasury Department, just sell us the bonds. So the Treasury Department needs a half a billion dollars raised. They sell a half a billion dollars to the Chinese and you and Grandma and the English. And they sell a half a billion to the Federal Reserve. Now, the Federal Reserve may turn around and buy back up another half billion off the open market to create a half billion of new money for our economy. But what about the half billion they bought directly? How does that work? They've created new money. Again, 
It's a new half billion dollars. The government's going to spend it. It goes into the economy. It starts circulating. It goes into the banks. The banks crank up the uh, the breeding farm and the children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren and great-great-grandchildren come out. But that's fine. But wait a minute. The Federal Reserve bought the bonds. So they took their money and bought the bonds, right? No, no, no. The Federal Reserve buys bonds from the Treasury the same way that they buy them from a bank with a journal entry. So at that point, the Fed literally is creating something with nothing. They are buying nothing with nothing and creating debt, and the debt equals the currency. And and this leads us to kind of the the, the next level here. So with all that being said... And this is what people that say our money is now worthless, it's backed by nothing but debt and blah, blah, blah. How is it then that our economy actually functions? Our money's not actually worthless. You go to work, you put in a lot of energy into your job, and eventually you get a paycheck and government takes more of it than they should, but you get something out of the end of it. If you didn't, you'd stop going to work. And then you take that something and you can buy gas or food or a six-pack of beer or a movie or a TV set or a pool. If you buy, if you save up enough of it and you buy a pool, people will come to your house, dig a hole, take away the dirt, bring in all kinds of equipment and build a pool. Fill up with water, set your chemicals for you, teach you how to use it and go away. That's a lot of energy expended. So if you can buy a pool with money or a house or anything, a car or anything else, then money can't be worthless. When we say it's worthless, in general, that's not what we really mean. We mean that its value is declining on a, on a daily basis. That it doesn't have an intrinsic backing that controls it. But most people don't get that. Most people don't understand. They just believe, oh, it's worthless. And then you ask them, well, if it's worthless, give me all your money. And, of course, they laugh. And then when you look at them, To indicate it's a serious statement, if you really think it's worthless, give it to me. They don't laugh anymore, and they think, well, my money's not worthless. That's not what I really meant. But if you ask them, what do you mean, they don't know. And the reason they don't know is because they don't know where the worth comes from. So where does money in the United States get its value? It gets its value from us. See, the United States is a huge country. If nothing else, we have all our lands. And then we have this agricultural region that produces billions and billions of tons of food. Then we have this stuff called coal that we pull out of the ground. We have this stuff we call oil that we pull out of the ground. We have these people that invent things and create things and do things. We have oceans on our borders that we can fish from and we can use for other purposes. We have the ability to produce energy with rivers that we dam. There's an intrinsic value to the United States of America. And when people loan us money to make this system go, that's what they're loaning it against. And that intent, that in essence, is where the value comes from. But then we have to look at and go, well, if that's the case, and we keep seeming to have a greater and greater amount of stuff in this country, why does the money go down? Why does the money go up in value? Why do we have inflation and deflation? Let's talk about what inflation is. Inflation, the way it's usually described by most people that have this conversation with you, is simply the more money we produce, the higher the inflation rate. So if we had $10 trillion in circulation, we put $1 trillion new dollars in circulation, that's a 10% increase in money. Since nothing's changed about the nation, 
And it's pretty much the same place it was yesterday. When that, 10, that new trillion goes in, it sucks 10% of the money away, and we should have 10% inflation. But yeah, we don't end up with 10% inflation. Well, why? Well, because the country doesn't stay the same. Because we do expand our production. We do expand our population. We do expand our core value. Inflation is really when the currency is increased at a rate greater than the intrinsic underlying value of the economy. Sounds like a textbook definition. Maybe. I don't know. I haven't read it in a textbook. But that's what it really is. Right? But there's some other factors in there. But before we do this and really examine the, these two factors, let's talk about the second factor. The other factor is deflation. And deflation is the, the other side of the sword that can cut into you if you do stupid stuff like, well, since inflation's a constant, I'm just going to clean out my 401k and put 100% of my money in gold and silver. Right? Because the guy that, that sells it from the, the company that sells it told me to buy it. And he said, if I don't buy it, all my money's going to be worthless. And my question to you then is, why do you, why do you want, why does he want your money? Deflation is the other side of the coin. Deflation happens when the monetary supply contracts, when there's less money, when money disappears. And we'll talk about how it disappears in a minute. But just understand that just like money can be expanded, it can contract. And when it contracts, we have deflation. If there was a billion dollars total in circulation, and I took a half a billion out, each dollar should, in theory, buy twice what the dollars bought the day before. Because the value is the sum total value of the economy, and each dollar is like one share of stock in a company. Think of it that way. The United States is a company. And a, co and a company has a balance sheet. And that's all the stuff they have. The stuff in the stock room, right? The investments the company holds. It's real estate. It's a big company. All its branch offices. It's output. It's production. All that stuff goes down. It's goodwill. All that stuff goes on a balance sheet. And when you, when you make that company public and you convert it into a stock, you do a fair value market of the, fair market value of the company. And then if the company's worth one billion dollars and you create, you know, one billion shares, every share in the company's worth one dollar. And if the company's value increases, the value of the individual share increases. If the company becomes worth two billion dollars and it doesn't create more stocks certificates, if it doesn't split the stock, and there's still only 1 billion shares, then a share has gone from being worth 1 billion to 2 billion. Now, speculation investing in the future drives stock prices, but that's the fundamental underlying value of the stock. Our money works the same way. So, decrease the quantity of dollars, increase the power of the dollar. Increase the quantity of the dollars, decrease the power of the dollar. It is that simple, but it's not that simple. Because the next thing that comes in is monetary velocity. If we don't have the money move, inflation doesn't happen. Velocity is a check on inflation. So what happens when everybody starts going, I'm not going to spend as much money as I used to, it starts saving it. When the banks decide it's a risky climate, so they loan less of it. Less money is created and less money flows. And when that happens, you can keep pouring money into the till. They can create, keep creating money at the, the, at the monetary base at the top. But if the money doesn't flow, inflation remains in check. So in bad economies, inflation for a time is held back. And if it's held back enough, we go into a deflationary period. And this is where we have to start looking at where did our money go? What, how does money disappear? Well, it, first of all, if all money is created by debt, 
This is where I might start to challenge you, even if you think you know this stuff. And if you don't, it's really going to, you're going to just go, wait a minute, right? If create if, if when I loan you $30,000, we create $30,000 new dollars in the economy. If you turn around tomorrow and say, I didn't really need it, and you give me the money back, what happens? The money is gone. Because remember, I never gave you money. I gave you a journal entry. You've returned the journal entry to me. I was holding the debt as an asset. You owed me $30,000. I had a piece of paper or a journal entry that said I'm owed $30,000. $30,000 I never plus interest. That's how I was going to make my money. You paid me back. All the interest that doesn't get paid, all the interest that gets saved never happens, and the $30,000 vanishes into thin air. Think about that. Think about what that means. When you pay off the, the American Express card, when you pay off the Visa card, when you pay off your car, when you pay off your house, especially when you pay them off early, when you pay them off in a lump sum, or a few short, big, heavy payments, the monetary supply is contracted. It declines. When a company that's deeply in debt realizes a tough economy is coming, and they cut down their employment base. They lay off the 5% of worst employees that they have. At least they feel that way. And then they cut salaries and they do everything to, to, to shore up the company financially. And they pay down their billion dollars in, in debt. Pay off all their bond, whatever. And they start stacking cash so that they're able to ride through the financial storm that we're in right now. And also they're making record profits and they're not loaning the money, they're not borrowing money, and they're not investing money, they're hoarding it. The money supply contracts. The other thing that makes debt shrink is default. Let's say I owe you $30,000. Let's make it a little bit more realistic. I owe you $150,000 because I bought a house and you loaned me the money to buy a house. And you put the little asset entry in your journal on your bank books to say 150,000 plus interest over 30 years. This asset is theoretically worth somewhere between $150,000 and $350,000 if this fool takes 30 full years to pay the money back from the interest and the compounding and everything else. And it's actually worth whatever I can sell it to another bank for. All right? And everything's great. And you've created that 150000 out of thin air, and you're sucking interest back off of me over 20 or 30 years from, from nothing. And everything's going good, and whoever got that money deposited it's back in your bank, and you do it again, and this time you loan out 90% of the 150000 You keep recycling all this money. Until I default, we have a contracting economy. We have a great recession. My neighborhood's gone to hell even worse than the other neighborhoods. My house is now worth about $50,000, and I still owe you $150,000 on it. I phone you up. I say, hey, what are we going to do about this? You, you tell me, tough crap. You're, you owe me $150,000. Pay me. And I say, dude, I can't pay you, and I can't sell this house. I lost my job. We need to work out some kind of uh, arrangement. And you say, I ain't. You know, or you do make, you say, you know what we'll do? We'll do a short sell. I'll let you sell the house for $140,000. Like, I can't sell for 144 50 And you say, I'm sorry. You know, that's the best we can do. And I say, you know what, ass clown? You know what? Here's the keys. Choke on the house. I'm walking the mortgage. And I walk, your, I walk the mortgage. 
You now take receivership of the property. But what's the property worth? $50,000. So if you are able to auction the house for $50,000, where'd the $100,000 go? Vanished into thin air. Absolutely vanished into thin air. That money is gone. It's not coming back. It's gone forever. So that, in, in that, we see there are two ways for the money supply to really shrink. No matter what they do at the top, if, if there's enough of this, the money supply will shrink. Defaults on debt and people paying debt off. Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't pay your debt off uh, so that you can help the economy. The president seems to think so, and the former president seemed to think so, that you know spending was what we needed to do. Be good Americans and spend yourself in the debt to spur the economy. I'm telling you to do the exact opposite. But I'm telling you the consequences of everybody doing it is dragging this system to its knees because we'll always have more debt than money because the debt comes with interest. And that's the trap. But understand, there's two things that cause contraction. Repayment of debt and defaults on debt. And for a bank, like you know, your bank, your hypothetical bank that I created in our story, if you have thousands and thousands and thousands of accounts and I default, it's not that big a deal. I mean, you're printing money out of thin air anyway. But when 20% of your accounts default... And other things called derivatives that we won't get into today that you've done like this that are even worse default, and it all falls apart at the same time, we have a severe monetary contraction. And that, my friends, is where the money went. We heard about all these trillions of dollars. Best estimate, best estimate, new money pumped into the economy by the Federal Reserve in the past few years, about $4 trillion, and it might be more, $4 trillion dollars. And everybody that's selling gold, everybody that, that thinks they halfway understand this, everybody's going, there has to be inflation, there has to be inflation, there has to be inflation. And they don't realize that the President, the Congress, the Senate, the Chairman of the Federal Reserve are probably all hitting their knees every night and going, dear whatever they see is God, please, please, please let there be inflation. Oh, we need inflation. And you're going, what? They want inflation? Of course they do. If you owe a lot of money, the more inflation that comes along and the cheaper money gets, the less it costs to pay off your debt. And the whole system's running on debt. And whether they know it or not, the average American, when they hit their knees at night, is going, please God, please God, let there be inflation. They're saying that when they say, please let me get a raise. They're saying that when they say, please let my 401k go back up so that I can retire. They're saying that when they say, please, please, let the government increase my Social Security check. And anything else like that. Because everything that causes growth in this nation, the way this system's set up, is tied to inflation. It requires continuous, constant growth. And even going flat in a maintenance mode is not possible. Because as soon as we stop growing, the, the, the currency be, has to contract. Because there will be defaults. And there will be additional savings. And you would think that savings would be good, but not in this system. That's why the system is inherently broken. But this is why people are looking at the M3 money supply, which is, again, the M3 is all the money. Every dollar that exists. And going, but it's contracted over the last two and a half years. 
it got it was going up 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 more and more more and more more and more more and more money and all of a sudden it's dropped how could it possibly drop with these four trillion new dollars well the money supply contracted faster than the Federal Reserve and the banks were able to, to expand it and that's it That, that's that's the way that works. Now let's talk about the two the two system system traps. The first one is the total debt will always be bigger than the total supply. What this means is let's shrink the United States economy down to a manageable number we can get in our heads. Let's say that the entire United States economy is represented by one million dollars. The total supply of dollars is one million, and there's I don't know, 100,000 people. So every American has had an equal distribution of wealth, and every American has one $10 bill in their hand. And all of us decide we would like this Federal Reserve thing to go away. We want to start with something new. We're not sure what it is. We're willing to bankrupt ourselves, to divest ourselves of this nonsense. So we all take all our $10 bills and put them into a gigantic pile and show up at the Federal Reserve and say, Dear Federal Reserve, here is your million dollars. Go away. The Federal Reserve says, thank you for a million dollars, but you owe us $1.25 million. And we say, but that's not possible. That's not possible in any way, shape, or form. This is all the money you've ever given us back. There is no, There are no more U.S. dollars in existence. And the Federal Reserve says, we're sorry. That's the rules that you set up for us to operate under in 1913 with the Federal Reserve Act. That's the trap. You say, but see, if the banks can create money, then we can create enough money in the banking system to take and give it to the Federal Reserve. Well, the problem is, it's still owed there. So if we pay the bank loan off before we pay the Federal Reserve loan off, the money supply contracts even further, and there's never enough money to pay off the debt. And that's why it requires constant growth. That's why the debt has always gone up. And that's why whenever the debt is contracted, it's been temporary, and it's had to go back up as long as we've had a Federal Reserve since 1913. Because there is no other solution. Because eventually, when you pay enough debt off, the trap is sprung, and the supply of money contracts, and the only way to get the economy to do anything again is to borrow more money, which creates more debt, which is just like the antlion trap I told you about. An antlion or a doodlebug, as they're called. They sit in really loose, sandy soil, and they make a little funnel. They sit at the bottom. When the ant falls in the funnel, he starts struggling. And, of course, since it's sandy, his little ant feet just can't get traction. He starts slipping towards the bottom. And the harder he fights, the more he falls. And then the antlion starts spitting little clumps of sand at him, hits him in the head, knocks him down, and sucks him into the funnel. There is no escape. Once you go down the rim, you know, the ant just goes around the edge, maybe he gets out. But once that ant's more than halfway down that hole, he's lost. That's the debt trap. And that's not Citibank's trap for you. That's the debt trap the, the Federal Reserve holds over the entire United States. What this means is our, our entire nation's worth and value is permanently mortgaged to the Federal Reserve. They own us. Monetarily speaking, they own us. And there's no way to explain that away. The next um, part of the trap is what we've already said. When we pay the debt off, the money supply contracts. So since we're making less dollars every time we pay debt, 
at a national level, there is no way to be debt free. If everybody paid off everybody, we would have no money left and we would still owe money. This is the system that's been set up for us. Now, I'm going to drop a bomb on you. The income tax exists to service the debt, not for primary spending. People think, you know, that income tax, I don't like it, but, man, we got to have it. What's the alternative without an income tax? I mean, if we can agree on nothing else, we got to have roads and bridges and stuff like that. Well, that's paid for with motor vehicle fuels taxes and fees on vehicles and other things like that. Well, we got to have schools. Well, that's primarily funded with property taxation and other fees and taxes and levies that aren't really tied to the income tax. Well, I mean, we... we We have to have, you know, this and we have to have that. And the more you look at it, the more you realize that the stuff we actually pay for, that the existing money funds, we don't need an income tax to pay it. The income tax does two things. It funds new borrowing and it funds the interest on the, the past borrowing. What, it, it, I know that doesn't seem to make sense. But let me give you some, these are some concrete numbers. I, I got these from online sources. Um, The federal debt, the new federal debt, the additional borrowing in 2009, or our deficit, the amount we spent beyond what we have, was $1.1 trillion. And I'm not going to get political about that. Bush spent a lot of money in his last year, too. Obama spent more, but everybody always spends more. You go through time, right? Um, Reagan spent more than Carter. Bush spent more than Reagan. I mean, year-for-year year analysis. Clinton spent more than Bush the first. Bush spent more than Clinton. I mean, they always spend more because, again, it's not about politics. It's not about the, which, who was president. You've just seen the system. It has to be that way. There always has to be more to keep the system running. So we borrowed $1.1 trillion in new spending. And then we also had to pay interest on the debt we were already carrying. The interest on the debt in 2009 was $383 billion dollars. Let me give you that number again. This should turn your stomach. The interest on the existing debt, $383 billion. You know, everybody got upset over $700 billion in stimulus? The interest on the debt was half of the stimulus. Let me give you some other numbers here just to, uh, just to make a point on how bad this, uh, this really is. The Department of Justice, the de entire Department of Justice, the people of the United States paid $23 billion for it. The entire Department of Homeland Security, that monstrosity that was created in response to 9-11, rife with waste and abuse. Billions of dollars going here and there. You know how much they'll spend? They spent in 2000, uh, how much they're going to spend in 2010? $46 billion. Department of Education? For, we probably don't even need that department because the states can run their own education just just fine, thank you. $46 billion. Department of Health and Human Services, one of the biggest uh, governmental organizations outside of Social Security and Defense, $76 billion. Department of Energy, $26 billion. So if I add up the cost of those five enormous government agencies... We get a cost of $217 billion. That's a lot of money, and I'm sure there's plenty of waste going on there. But the cost of those five monstrosities of government combined is $197 billion less than the interest we paid on the debt last year. 
It also represents over 20% of gross tax receipts. Because here's the next one I'm going to drop on you. Last year, you and me and the rich people and the poor people and everybody put together from the poorest person that paid a dollar in income tax that, that just crossed the threshold to owe a buck to people like Bill Gates and Mark Cuban, when we add up all of the money that we sent to Washington, we gave those people, if we can call them people, I was going to call them something else, but I censored myself there for a change. $1.21 trillion. $1.2 trillion. Round it off. $1.2 trillion. All right? $383 billion to fund the interest on the debt. $1.1 trillion to fund new borrowing or the creation of new money. And we add $1.1 trillion to $383 billion. And we get $1.48 trillion. So we borrowed and we paid interest that exceeded the entire income tax. Isn't it funny how close... Those two numbers are about $200 billion apart. Isn't it funny how they add up that way? See, what you're going to find eventually is that we don't have to borrow any of that money from anybody with any interest. No requirement for that. Not, not supposed to be that way according to the United States Constitution. You know, the instruction manual for America. Let me give you some other facts about 1913, the year that the Federal Reserve was created. The, the year that we created the Federal Reserve, the private banking system that runs this whole monstrosity that I've explained so far today, that same year, uh, we also created something else you're very familiar with. I've just been talking to you about it, the income tax. In 1912, all the way back to 1776, there was no federal income tax, except a very small, short-term version uh, during war to fund war. And it was small. And it went away as soon as the war went away. It only affected people that were considered quite wealthy at the time. So all the way from 1776 to 1913, the United States was able to service all its debt, pay all its bills, good times and bad, through sales taxes and duties and excise taxes and things like that. But in 1913, all of a sudden, we needed an income tax. The same year that we created a Federal Reserve, something else happened in 1913. In 1913, we changed the way that we elect senators at the federal level. Up until that point, they had been elected by a popular or, or by, by the state legislature. So you would vote for people that would go to, you know, if you lived in Texas, Austin, or in Florida, Tallahassee, or what have you. And then that legislature would appoint two senators and send them off to Washington. We changed that as well. We made three hugely fundamental changes to our government and our way of life in 1913. The way we elect one of the most powerful branches of our government, putting a tax on people that never existed before, and permanently giving away the ability of our government to regulate, control, and create our money supply. You have to ask yourself, why those... Th think of how big each one of those changes are. Why did they all occur in 1913? And I've made a decision now. I'm going to break this show into two parts. You're going to have to tune in tomorrow to hear the rest of the story. Tomorrow I'm going to tell you what that is really all about. I'm going to explain to you why those three things happen. I'm going to tell you why it even matters that we change the way we elected senators. I'm going to explain to you tomorrow 
why the Congress should be, but is no longer, the most powerful branch in government. I'm going to tell you tomorrow why every politician that tells you why something can't be done or what they'd like to do is probably full of shit, and there's no other way to put it. And you might think, I knew politicians were full of shit. You know what? <laughs> you really didn't. When you hear what I have to tell you tomorrow, you'll really understand it. You'll understand why people that become truly informed tend to become political atheists and stop believing any of them. But I'm going to save that to, to, for you tomorrow, because if I keep going right now, this show will go two hours, and that's too long for a show. So tune in tomorrow for the rest. But up till now, let's recap what we've learned. The money in the United States is not only not backed by anything, it's actually backed by debt. It's created by a private group of banks called the Federal Reserve System. The total number of dollars created will always be exceeded by the total amount of debt due back. Therefore, paying off debt is impossible at the national level. It is impossible to be debt-free. Indeed, it's even impossible to make a significant dent in the overall debt load. Think about this. You know all the money that contracted and the Federal Reserve pumped in $4 trillion more? We owe that money, even though the money that it replaced was destroyed. The antlion trap, the sand is running. In time, we will double our debt. It is projected that we will double our debt between now and 2020, if the government keeps doing what it's doing, and eight years ain't that long. That's two presidential terms, folks. You know, what is it, two and a, two and a half right now, because we're at 2010. So ten years. We'll double our debt. When you double debt, you double interest. Remember that number I gave you, $383 billion. It's how much money that we we paid in interest on the debt alone in uh, 2009. Well, this year, this year, you know, I keep telling you, it always goes up. We pay, we will pay total in 2010 $414 billion. $414 billion in interest on the debt. So if we double the debt between now and 2020, we'll double the interest. If we double that interest, that's $828 billion. $828 billion? Do you know how much that is? That's more than we, we spend on the Department of Defense, the entire Department of Defense. That's more than we spend on Social Security. That's more than we spend on Medicaid and Medicare put together. That is more money than we spend on any single department of government. And if we take out the Department of Defense, it's more money than we spend on any two departments of government combined. And this is the plan. This is the plan. Now, the thing is, if you're thinking right now, well, then inflation's guaranteed. Sooner or later, probably yes, but don't put all those eggs in one basket, folks. I want to finish up today with a little bit of temperance on this stuff. The plan doesn't always get executed. The plan doesn't always work out. And our government's not really big on this thing called an exit strategy, as we all know. So we have to be prepared for continued inflation that's typical, two, three, four percent official numbers, and a rea backdoor reality of about eight percent or more. We have to be prepared for deflation. We have to be prepared for, for just a stagnation. And we have to be prepared for hyperinflation. We have to be prepared for all of those things. And we do that by putting real value into our homes and our households. So I'll leave you with that thought. And tomorrow, tune in, and I'll give you the rest of the story. 
Make sure that you fully take in everything that I've said today. I know for some of you, a lot of this was a refresher. I promised to really change the dynamics of your thought today. I'm going to have to put that off till tomorrow. But when you tune in tomorrow, I'll complete what I started today. And you will never again look at a dollar bill or a politician of any party the same way ever again. And with that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. Yeah.